Welcome to Pragmatic Live, the podcast for product people. If you're in product management or product marketing, you happen to have found the right place. I'm Mark Stiving, a pragmatic marketing instructor and sometimes host of this podcast. And today I get to interview another pragmatic instructor. He happens to have tons of experience in marketing. I got to travel with him for several months. A good friend of mine, let's all welcome Mr. Dave Daniels. Yay! <laughs> Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Such kind words. Thanks so much for your help today, Dave. Uh, it's gonna hey. be a, it's gonna be a good good session. Uh, you're you're very welcome. I always love doing these. It's a lot of fun. So you just posted a new blog, and and that gives us reason to talk again, I guess. Oh yeah, okay. And and the new blog is pretty interesting. It starts off with with, oh my gosh, tracking leads is a waste of time. Oh, oh, oh. Yes, painful. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of those things where particularly this, this particular blog post was targeted to product marketing managers. And uh, there's a lot of confusion in the product marketing community about what to measure and what not to. And I was recently at a product marketing community event in San Francisco and I had a chance to talk to a lot of product marketers and they said consistently, this was a big issue. And I said, hmm, as fate would have it, I'm working on a blog post about that. Okay. Wait, and wait, wait, so, you said this is a big issue. What's this, what's the big issue? This being, um, what should I measure to show that uh, the things that I'm doing are actually having an impact on the business and show that I'm doing a good job? Oh, that's that's generating leads is not one of those. Yeah, that's great insight because what we really want to do is we want to have impact on the business, right? If we're not having impact on the business, who cares? Right. We didn't hire you because you, you know, you, you keep the seat warm and, you know, you have a good uh, a Facebook profile. It's because you got to add, you know, contribute something to the business. Okay. And so you have the title happens to be seven metrics every product marketing manager should know. And let's see if we have time to make it through all seven. I'm not sure. It depends yeah. on how much you and I decide to talk about them. All right. It'll be a sprint. Okay. But let's talk about, uh, we'll start at the first one with average deal size. Um, so yeah. First off, tell me what average deal size is, why we care, what's going on. Yeah. Okay. So uh, just as, a, as another setup of these seven real quick, what we're going to be doing is focusing on a set of basic metrics to track the health of a product. You know, is it heading in the right direction, is it, isn't it? Uh, as I said in the blog post, you don't want to find out that the patient was sick after he's already died. So let's figure out ahead of time so we can do something about it. I read these as something slightly different than what you just said. Yeah. And that is, how can I, as a product marketing manager, demonstrate that I'm making a difference? Yes. So, so here it is. If, if I'm tracking the health of the product, and I can report about what's working and what's not. Then at the end of the day, that makes me look better because I'm looking at I, I'm, I'm now being viewed as a business person, you know, not, not just another person in marketing who's spending money. So let's talk about this average deal size. Average deal size is exactly what it means. In other words, uh, on an average, um, what's the amount of money your customers spend with you? So if they buy something that your product. This the product in question that you support as a product marketing manager. How much do they buy? And what we want to do is we, we want to track whether that is increasing, decreasing, staying about the same. We also want to track whether it varies by market segment by market segment. It's possible that you have market segments where the average deal size is consistently large 
and others where it's cons consistently small. By bringing that to the attention of the rest of the team, you can maybe guide the resources toward winning more and more larger deals and growing the business faster. Boy, doesn't that make sense? It tells us which market segments we ought to be focused on. Mm, exactly. And it's just one of those uh, barometers to help you guide in the right direction. Yeah, I, I think average deal size is a key thing. And, and the idea is that we're going to take actions so that we can drive deal sizes bigger and bigger. Maybe those actions are the customers that we currently deal with. We get them to buy more or pay more. Or maybe right. it's we go find market segments and we focus on those market segments where they tend to buy more or pay more. Or, as, as his really famous uh, pricing guy once said, is they have a, a higher willingness to pay. They're willing to pay more and spend more. Yeah, you should quote him more often. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right. So let's go on. to the next one. What about the average length of a sale? This, this one feels like a no-brainer, but go ahead. It's a no-brainer. How, how, how much time does it take for a customer to make a decision? From the time that they go, hey, I want to talk to you about this. This is interesting to me, too. Here's my money. So, is again, is that, just like average deal size, is that get, getting longer? Is it getting shorter? Um, does it vary by market segment? So what I'm looking for here is over time. The goal over time is... What can I do as a product marketing manager to affect the length of the sale? Can I make it shorter? Because if I can make the average length of the sale shorter, I can improve the throughput of the entire sales channel. They're okay. capable of handling more deals with fewer resources. So what can product marketing managers do to shorten the length of the sales cycle? Well, that's a whole complete completely different topic, which we cover up in a, at least an hour. Uh, but the high points is, uh, you know, doing things like conducting win-loss analysis and understanding um, where the bottlenecks occur in the sale. You know, so identify the bottlenecks, then figure out what you can do to reduce them or eliminate them and continue that as an ongoing process. You know, lather, rinse, repeat. And, and so in the win-loss, we learn what tools we have to give our salespeople so that they can get through the, the process much faster. Yeah, who to talk to, what to say, what to avoid, you know, you know, not to, you know, what stupid things not to say, you know, all of those things. What are the good things to say? When should I say them? How to probe to find the right problems, a good product, um, you know, uh, match with the, with the particular customer and their problems or their needs. So it just gives us more and more guidance. And, uh, you know, is it possible to always reduce the length of the sale? I don't know that it is, particularly for larger complex sales. But on average, we should be striving to reduce it. And, and what's interesting about that one is that we actually teach in the market class, I believe, that one of the metrics we use is how long is that time frame and how do we shrink that over time? Mm -hmm. so. Exactly. So you're looking for things like... Uh, uh, how much time does it take in each step of the sales process? Uh, you know, what percentage of, of deals um, move from one stage to the next? You know, is the ratio good? Is it bad? Can we make it better? Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of focus that you can put right in that metric alone. Yep. Cool. So close ratio, because these three, the three uh, average deal size, length of the sale, and close ratio all work together. Um, and they, if, if you're not... You can pay attention to one and ignore the other. So close ratio is, is exactly what it means. 
how many deals of the ones that we we get the opportunity to work on, how many of those as a percentage do we actually close and a customer buy something? Ideally, we want that close ratio to be higher and higher. Um, the perfect close ratio would be 100%. Uh, that's impossible, but uh, mathematically, 100% would be perfect. Every deal that comes in closes, but we know that's not going to happen. Now, the reason why that's important, it goes back to um, sales throughput and the capacity of your channel again. If you're able to improve your close rates, then you're able to produce more, you know, flow more business through the existing resources you have. Um, conversely, if your close ratio is getting worse, and for example, you're in a growth mode, now you've got a really big problem because you have to work more and more deals in order to reach that, that growth you're trying to hit. So now when you put all three of these together, you can see how they, they, uh, they work as one recipe. So if you have, for example, a smaller average deal size or trending smaller, and you have a longer length of sale, it's trending longer, and you got a lousy close ratio, you know what you got? In general, you just got a really big problem. Yes. Like, uh, maybe I ought to update my resume kind of problem. Yes. Um, now, I, here, I'll be the first to say, that doesn't mean that the product manager can, or product marketing manager, excuse me, has a whole lot of direct impact on those three metrics. But if you're tracking it and you see that these three are not working together and uh, you're flowing it to the right people and nothing's being done about it, I, you know, it might be time to move on. Without getting too in the weeds here, close mm -hmm. ratio feels a little squishy to me in the mm -hmm. following sense. Um, if I want to increase my close ratio, I stop passing bad leads to sales. And I only pass them really good leads. Correct. Why is that a bad thing? Because if I want to influence close ratio, I just change the leads. There may have been some leads in that set that I chose not to pass them that we could have closed. That could have been good leads. I, uh, I, I was viewing it a little differently in that we should be passing leads to sales that actually have a higher potential to close. Um, not every one of them is going to close, but if I've got, if I, if I've established a good definition of what a good lead looks like, and we call it a marketing qualified lead, um, then we shouldn't be holding any of those back. And, you know, from being on the, on the product marketing side of the house and uh, helping guide these programs and setting up, uh, programs to drive demand and interest, um, I'd certainly want to be passing as many over to sales as I possibly could, but there's the other tipping point. If I start throwing too much stuff over there and it's not well vetted, yep. then I'm going to have pushback from the channel saying, stop sending me this junk. I don't, I don't want this. Yep. Yeah. So I, I think as a close ratio, if I got to choose what ratio to use there, it would be how many deals we close, what percent of the sales qualified leads we closed. Because then it's totally irrespective of what we as marketing chose to pass over. It was what sales said, yeah, we think this is a good lead. We're going to go work on it. Yeah, you could certainly do it that way. Mm -hmm. Because if you had a bad close, uh, close ratio at that point, then there's all kinds of things you want to be investigating. Is, is it, uh, are, are they pitching the wrong product? They got the right problem with the wrong product. Do they have the wrong problem in the right product? Do they, is it a, uh, a sales enablement issue? 
Um, there's all kinds of things we can start looking at, but we can do it analytically, not just get in a room and throw darts at each other and go, it's your problem. Okay, can you uh, go ahead and forward your slide deck? Because we're going to go to the next one. <laughs> retention rate. Yeah, retention rate. Yeah, that one, number four. So uh, retention rate is merely uh, how many you know how many of your customers are you keeping? That's all it really means. Now, um, you know the complement of the the 180 degree of that one is is churn is the churn rate. Uh, it's just a different way of looking at it. Retention rate is about how many we keep. Churn is about how many we lose. Um, and this is a really important number to track because of important metric, because if your retention rate is going down, which means your churn rate is going up, then that's more and more deals you have to backfill in order to get back to, to, uh, uh, to where you were. So not only are you getting new customers in, uh, into the, uh, into the fold, but you're having to make up for the ones that you've lost. So if the if the uh, the retention rate gets too low, starts bending in the wrong direction, that can be a really really bad sign for the business, uh, particularly around that product. And retention rates can start to go down because we get new competition, the product quality is suffering, or we're not advancing it fast enough, or uh, so, yeah, customer support issues, maybe, uh, quality. Maybe, maybe we're putting too many bad customers into our product. And they shouldn't have been in there in the first place. That's so it's always a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there's a, the always the saying in sales: uh, all revenue is good revenue. And I, you know, every deal is a good deal. I'm like, no, it isn't. Uh, it is for the sales rep. Let's be honest; they yes. got a really tough job. Yes, it's they get maybe, the commission, they move on. Now it's our problem. Maybe doing win loss for our uh, churns would help us understand why they're leaving and help us figure out how we can solve that problem. Bingo. Why are they? It's the exit interview. It's the, it's the element of a win-loss uh, program that I like to call the exit interview, just like in HR. You leave a company, they say, you know, why'd you leave us? What, what were the issues? Talk to me about it. Um, and that can be an amazingly informative. Excellent. So the next one is adoption rate. And before you start yeah. talking about this one, let me point out, a pragmatic marketing survey last year, and I think the number was 36% of product yeah. people confessed to having put a product, a feature in their product that nobody uses. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> surprised by that. <laughs> Seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah, exactly. All right, so adoption rate really just means um, if someone, someone went all the way through the process and they made a purchase and they used it, are they continuing to use it? Are they, gonna, are, are they coming back for more? You can see how adoption rate and retention rate uh, work hand in hand because some, some customers get super excited about a product initially and then their excitement just kind of falls by the wayside and then they don't renew. So now you've got, you can see how these two connect to each other. Um, you know, or do they get annoyed? Is it is it the product? Is it some other aspect of, of, of you know why they're not continuing to adopt? Why do they stop using it? So those two go hand in hand. Um, adoption rate can also be applied to something new, like a new release, and you have all these new major features, and you want your customers to use it, and you find out they're not. Was it what was this thirty six percent? Did you say? I, I think that was the number, but we have to check that. Yeah, 
we put it in there and people went, uh, what do we need that for? I don't even need to use that. All right. We, hey, we got two more to go. How much time we got? Uh, plenty. How about lifetime value? Uh, customer lifetime value. This was, this was one of the aha moments early in my, my career. Uh, I was at a marketing conference and uh, this guy was talking about customer lifetime value. And, I, and, it, and it, just, it just resonated with me. And, and what he was, the point he was trying to make is how much, how much profit do you make from a given customer? So what's the average customer lifetime value? And uh, not the revenue now, not how much do they spend with you? How much do you make? What's the profit? And then once you start thinking it that way, you can start thinking about things like, well, how much are we willing to spend in order to get one more of those customers? And so it doesn't take you long to realize that if you have a customer lifetime value of say a million dollars, then spending $50,000 or or $100,000 to acquire them doesn't seem so ridiculous anymore. So, you know, you know, and, and, and then we're sweating over, you know, $10 Google AdWords or $5 Google AdWords. Um, but what does it, how much profit does a, a typical customer bring to you? And it does that vary again by market segment. Do you have, do you have market segments that have, you know, enviable lifetime value they stay with you forever they spend a lot of money with you and they do it gladly because they feel they're getting good value and are you serving market segments where there isn't that great of customer lifetime value um, which means you might have low adoption rate therefore a higher retention rate or a lower retention rate I should say so customer lifetime value is a business level metric to track so on average how much profit do you make from a given customer? And the, the good thing about this metric is you can get the data from finance. They've got it. They may not have exact numbers, but they can give you a good enough approximation. That's for sure. So I love this metric. I'm, I'm actually sitting here thinking through my head how confusing it might be. If I were a hardware product, I could easily say, here's the profit that I get. However, yeah. if, I, if I'm a SaaS, recurring revenue SaaS kind of company, and somebody's paying me 50 bucks a month, what are my costs? So what are my profits? And I mean, we're, we're back into that whole pricing issue, but, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure how to calculate that in that respect. Do you have any thoughts on that or? Um, I'm, I'm not quick, completely tracking with you, but um, it's a fairly easy way to, I mean, the, the reason why I say go to finance for that, because they'll, they'll be close enough where you can you can find out if it's trending upward downward it's flat um and they can pretty much based on customer you can you can back into market segments um but from a SaaS point of view this is an incredibly important metric uh, because you want to keep them as long as you possibly can because well, the, there are those cases particularly in SaaS vendors that have more of an enterprise solution where you're incurring a lot of upfront costs, uh, cost of sale, uh, paying commissions, uh, delivery, uh, activation, um, all of those kind of things. Some, some might actually be fairly expensive for your company to implement. So you're not really seeing uh, any significant profit in the early, uh, 
early part of the customer's lifetime, but you see it on the back end once everything settles in. Um, so that's a, a critical metric for um, those who offer um, uh, software, hardware, anything uh, in a subscription-based model. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think I'll, I'll express my opinion now, if that matters, since I've had a chance to think about it a little bit. Although interesting. Although yeah. interesting, yes. <laughs> my, I, it seems to me that um, in SaaS companies, finance people really want to take the overall development costs, divide it by the number of units, and say, here's our cost per unit, and we're going to use that as our profit as we start to figure out how much profit we made. And I think just like we do, if we were going to do pricing, we would want to look at customer lifetime value and ignore any allocated fixed costs or allocated overhead and just mm -hmm. look at the incremental costs. Exactly. And, yeah. And in SaaS products, that might be really close to revenue. Um, although I've had a lot of pushback lately from SaaS companies saying that their costs are not zero anymore uh, because of AWS and things like that, where they're paying a lot right. to, to support customers. And that makes sense. Right, but they're they're still they have a baseline amount that at some cost, and then it's variable, you know, based on how much they're consuming. Yep. Um, so they can certainly roll that into their pricing. But I, I can see how that uh, could be a challenge. But when I start looking at it over, say, two years, three years, five years, and more, now I, I begin to see a different picture uh, in terms of profitability. Because ideally, we'd want to get our SaaS customers up and running. Um, quickly, efficiently, um, you know, with as little support as possible, um, and then uh, you know, maximize the profit for the for the rest of the uh, the term of the, the relationship that we have with them. Yep. Okay. Hey, last one: customer acquisition costs. We kind of talked about it already, but uh... yeah, customer acquisition costs. Exact. It's exact. Exactly what it says. So, on average. How much does it cost our organization to um, acquire a customer you know, for, for a given product? What's the cost that we incur to do that? The people cost, uh, the, you know, the travel cost, the promotional cost, the everything. The all in, on average, what does it cost us? Um, and that's an indicator because if you can see how these last four tie together too, because if we're finding that our, our customer lifetime value is starting to, to go down and our customer acquisition cost is going up and then the adoption rate is, is going down, which affects the retention rate, we also have another big problem. Yep. So what we're trying to do is keep our customer acquisition costs within um, certainly a realistic expectation, but the other thing you have to factor is if I'm an early in an early stage company, my customer acquisition costs may be a whole lot higher than somebody who's well established and has a brand and so forth. And that's a conscious decision we're going to make. We're going to say, yeah, got it. That's just the cost of doing business to, to succeed. Uh, and that'll help us build our customer base, gets us to, to the next round, you know, and then we can build even, even greater. But how much does it cost you to acquire one? Um, how, how much is that as a percentage of customer lifetime value as an example? Yep. That, that seems really important. So, okay. Now I'm going to jump back to the very beginning and push yeah. back for just a second. 
because you started your blog out with the words, tracking leads is a waste of time. Yeah. And as I go through the seven metrics you just gave us, mm -hmm. none of these talk about we need more volume. These are essentially all talking about the quality of the volume that we have today or that mm -hmm. we get through. But, but of course we need more volume. Of course we need more leads. Well, the reason why I wanted to be a little bit more um, in your face about the lead thing is like a you would be shocked at the number of product marketing managers who their primary metric of success is how many leads that they generate. And if there's one thing I've learned in my career is if you measure me on something like how many leads I generate, you're going to get your leads and I'm going to get my attaboy or my bonus. Um, and if I don't have to worry about the definition of a lead, it's all about volume. It goes back to the old adage of sales where it's like, it's a numbers business. Get me more leads. I'll close more business. It's a secondary metric. It's, it, it has its importance, but only within the context of the other seven. So for example, if my close ratio is off and I'm not passing the right uh, marketing qualified leads to sales, it might indicate that I've got a lead problem in quality, not in quantity. And so I, you know, I, if there's one thing I've learned about working with the sales team through the years is that, yeah, they want leads, but they don't want leads that waste their time. They want leads that, that actually have some, uh, some meat behind them that at least show that there's a fairly good opportunity. They're not, they're not asking for guarantees. They're just asking for a fair shot. And unfortunately, too often leads become the metric of success. And then we get into the, the, uh, the blame storming meetings about how we generated all the leads and then sales didn't follow up on them. And then sales goes, we need more leads. Those leads stink. And then, you know, it goes round and round in circles. So what I wanted people to think about as they listen to this podcast, uh, watch the, the slides on SlideShare or, or read the blog post is, and particularly for managers of product marketing managers, is really start de-emphasizing leads as a measure of, of success because it really isn't. Start measuring these other seven and you'll see how leads fit into those seven. You'll know that, ah, we got a problem over here. Now let's go look at our, our lead generating engine and find out where it's broken and where it needs work. So what's kind of interesting about that whole conversation is that we could say, if you take these seven metrics that you've given me and the only thing they don't capture yet is volume, we could say instead of capturing the volume we're putting in the top of the funnel, what if we capture the volume that we get out the bottom of the funnel? And so, so that counts. And so it's still volume, and we still get graded on it. It's still a metric. And by the way, we call that uh, revenue, I think. Yes. Right. <laughs> three wonderful words, rev and new. Rev and new. Yes. Yeah, that's, how, that's how the game is scored. The game is not scored by how many leads you generate. It's by how many deals you close and how much money you bring into the company. Huh. That's where the heroes are made. Awesome. It, and so any parting words of wisdom with our, our product marketing managers that are out there listening today? You know what? Start small. Don't try to, to you know, don't, don't walk in tomorrow 
or go to your boss and say, look, we're doing it all wrong. I, I heard this podcast from these guys, and this is what we're supposed to be doing. Um, start small. Pick a couple of these metrics. Make sure you can track them and get the data. Watch them over a period of time. Share them with some of your colleagues and your boss, um, especially if there's some anomalies, some big things that jump out. Um, keep this in mind. This is a starter set. Your business maybe have some unique characteristics where additional metrics would apply. So, um, you know, factor that in too. But that would be my you know, start small. Don't, uh, as they like to say, this trite saying I hear over and over again, don't try to boil the ocean. Mm. Like pick a few, start tracking them. If I were going to start tracking, I'd probably start with the first three. I'd go with those. What's the average deal size, length of the sale, and the close ratio? Let's just start there. Then we can expand on as we can get the others. And but the, nice thing, hmm? the nice thing about those three is they're easy. They're easy to capture. See, they're easy. Yes. Um, most of the, yeah, they can all be pulled from the Salesforce automation component of your CRM system. And if they, if you can't, then you need to get a new one. How's that? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Dave, thank you so much for your time today. It was fun. I enjoyed You're it. You're very welcome. Let's do this again sometime soon. Okay. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As always, we'd love to hear from you. I will welcome your questions, suggestions, especially compliments for Dave or for me. And <laughs> please send your comments to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. Also, don't forget to join us for the next episode of Pragmatic Live. <laughs>